would turn in your Bible this morning to Joshua 24. Joshua 24, we're wrapping up our series on the book of Joshua this morning. It seems that though we have been wrapping up the series for a number of weeks uh, because of Joshua's farewell address, but we are actually finalizing uh, the book of Joshua today. And as DT had mentioned, there are so many lessons in which we have learned uh, over the course of our study of the book of Joshua together. Uh, I want to bring a conclusion, the conclusion that we'll see here in the end, but also just some conclusionary thoughts as as things that we have uh, learned together in Joshua 24. You you remember as you as we started this study and as you study narratives in the Bible that you remember perhaps way back to the very early parts of the series that we understood that within a narrative there are multiple functions that the narrative is serving. One of the functions is to just give a direct account of historical things that occurred in space and time so that we understand these things were not just spiritual in and of themselves, but they are validated through archaeology, through a whole number of different things that uh, we have seen along our journey. And, a, and then the other portion of, of a narrative, to serve an understanding of what is God doing with Israel? What is God doing when he sets aside a land? And we ought to be thinking when we come to the book of Joshua, what's the whole point of God giving a land to a particular group of people? It should leave a thought lingering in your mind. God does things for reasons uh, of which we want to begin to then contemplate. The other side of it is this real large perspective of the picture, uh, which a narrative serves to help convey, which is this. God is king. He was the king of Israel. You wonder why in the book of Joshua, you pass from the servant Moses to the servant Joshua and not King Moses and King Joshua. It's because Israel had a king. There was no need for a king. There was a need for the people to have servants that would guide them to a, to a, to a walk of faith, to a trust in the living God. And that's what Joshua was. And we are still, even as we end the book of Joshua, I want to remind you that those facets of the narrative exist to help you interpret well and appreciate well the facets of the history that God records about himself. And I can't say it enough as you read your Bible in the Old Testament to help reiterate to you that you read an Old Testament narrative to understand what is, who is my God like and what is my God doing. It is not, I don't want you to end this morning as we talk about the life of Joshua and the conclusion of someone's life in the history that you leave just thinking that Joshua, in and of himself, as this historical figure, is what you pattern everything around. You pattern your life around the perfect example, Jesus Christ, and even people like Joshua just give you a shadow of the kind of leadership that Jesus Christ would ultimately bring to the people of God in the New Testament. Let's look, look with me, if you would, Joshua 24. Uh, we want to covered this last portion starting in verse 29. Let's read this uh, ending portion of the book of Joshua together. It says, After these things, Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath Sirah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim and north of the mountain of Gaash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the works that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. Now you read that last, that last portion, you think this person's gone, this person's gone, and this person's about to be gone. Uh, and you think, well, what kind of benefit could there potentially or applicationally be to understanding the conclusion of a book? 
I want to unfold that for you this morning as we think about this, uh, as we think about this dynamic together uh, in the process of our lives. Here's one of the things I want us to think about. That the longer you live and the longer I live, there's something that we begin to realize even more than ever before, is that death is a reality. You know, every time you mark in the, in the Bible when someone passes away and death is, an, is a conclusionary element to a person's life, I hope that you understand that not as a litany or a eulogy of someone's fulfilled life. Because I think what's going on here in the history is also just a recognition of what sin brought into the world. Why, I mean, it should cause us to ask questions like, why do leaders have to die? Why do people have to pass away? Why is it that all of a sudden these people that we've cherished and appreciated for years and have been examples of the faith, why is it that one day they come to a conclusion and that they were now turned to dust and leave people that they cherished behind? There's something about death that brings a sober reality to a life of the people of Israel when they watched one servant pass away, another one rise in his place, and now Joshua, that great leader of the conquest, is now faced with death as well. And I would challenge you to remind yourself that the older that you get, and some of you are there and you're thinking, I'm there. <laughs> I am at that latter stage of my life. You know, you're probably not thinking to yourself, I want to make it till 110. That's not where I'm thinking. I'm hoping, like, take me sooner. <laughs> but use me as long as you can. But Joshua lived a full life. But as you contemplate death, I would probably say that the reality of it is for us, is here's what you won't be thinking about on your deathbed. You won't be thinking about what kind of clothes they're going to put on you in the casket. I have a little bit of understanding of that. But whether they're stylish of whatever sort, you're saying, I'm gone and I really don't care. If you're a Christian, you're saying, I'm going to be in a better place. It's not the clothes that you're wearing. And it's probably not going to be the car you drive. If you're laying on your deathbed going, you know what, I am going to miss my Corvette there might be something wrong with the, what you've been focusing on. You're not going to be thinking about, oh, I just can't leave my house. It's so nice. You know what you begin to think about? Is the real deep things that matter. You know what those things are? Your walk with God and your relationship to him and how you've walked alongside other people and your relationship with them. I have been there at the bedside of far too many people listening to them contemplate what they wish they would have been like as a Christian, only to now have to be plagued in their mind thinking, if I would have just done this, so many things would be different. So many things would change. I mean, think about how Ecclesiastes describes this in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. See, there's something about death that even Solomon understood, that when you go to a funeral, and do you not do this, and I, do, I still do this today, you are thinking about your life. You're thinking about that person's life and if they're a believer and how they've impacted people for the glory of God and you're thinking to yourself, I wanna live that kind of life. I want my life to matter, to count before the Lord. See, it's intended, death is a reality and its intention is to remind us of the curse of sin and the predicament that we're in had not Jesus that God the Father wouldn't have sent his son Jesus to die for our sins and, and wipe out this whole dying thing. Because I love getting to the New Testament when he says, and he will do away with the very last thing, the sting of death. Death is a reality because sin is a reality. When you see the life of even godly men 
come to a conclusion, it ought to be a reminder to you and to me that our lives are not going to be lived forever in the body that you have because sin has ravaged our culture. And it's, it's not gonna stop until one day when Jesus eradicates sin and does away with it and we will not have it any longer. That is going to be wonderful. I love what John Piper said concerning death. He said, I don't, I don't pay, he said, I don't so much pray that my death will be without pain, but that it will be without doubt. Think of how often we often struggle as Christians with just trusting God at his word. See, the conquest is a litany of reports of people trusting and then not trusting and then trusting and then not trusting. George Whitfield, when he was thinking about the end of his life, said something like this to the people that he preached to. He said, you take care of your life and the Lord will take care of your death. You just worry about living for him today. And Christian, can I just remind you that all, all that you're guaranteed is the life, that, the moment that you have right now. You're not guaranteed that you're gonna make it till this afternoon. You're not guaranteed that you and I can look back and say uh, the record of our life and our, uh, our you know, totality of our life will be what it was for Joshua at 110 years old. We have today if God gives us today. We have the breath we breathe if God gives us that today, which means there should be a sense of urgency for us to live our lives wondering, when will he call me to the last breath? Will I have taken care of my life and put it into God's hands and let him take care of the rest? Will I live with a trust instead of a doubt? See, let me even just prod your mind a bit further and ask you this. If you knew that you were your life was coming to an end next month and he gave you the date on the calendar, not the one you want to put as any reminders to, but if he gave you the date and you knew that your conclusion was coming to an end, your life was going to be no more, what are the things that now come to your mind that you're saying to yourself, I need to fix this? I need to repent of this. I need to call out to the Lord. I need to pursue this kind of relationship with God. Live it with a sense of urgency as if today might be your last day here on earth. I know that's hard for us because we go to bed every night, do you not? Do you ever go to bed and you don't look at your spouse probably and go, well, if I see you tomorrow... You don't often do that. If you said that, she, she might say, where are you going? We don't live in the sense with that idea of urgency. But what if it is, what if it is that God is calling you and ending your days? Don't look back at the end of your life and have to say, I wish I would have paid more attention to and you fill in the blank. I wish I would have resolved this. I wish I would have and then go through a litany of lists because I'll tell you what, I've watched people who have not lived their lives even as believers in a way that God would be honored and at the end of their days as they contemplate in the quietness of their soul, they are, they are contemplating the life they wish they would have lived instead of the life that they did live. And if you don't know, guess what? Today is a day to be very serious about that reality in your life this morning. Here's the main idea I want to give you, and it's, uh, it's not going to be up behind you this morning, uh, but let me give it to you. As here's really the conclusionary elements from beginning to end of the book of Joshua. Strength and courage are possible because of God's, because of God's promised presence. Strength and courage are possible because of God's promised presence. At the very beginning of Joshua, he began to say to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Every place that your foot treads, every place that you go, I will be with you. That is true, as true today as it was for Israel then. We don't have the similar idea of the conquest as we have said, but his promised presence is the very thing that can bring the Christian a courage and strength at all cost when they live in a culture 
that is spiraling in depravity. Joshua wants us to end this book with a few of these. I'm going to give you three of them that are in your notes to remind us and keep in our own heart and keep in our own mind as we come to the conclusion of Joshua. The first one is this. God keeps his promises. Aren't you thankful for that? See, there's something that you and I sometimes underappreciate about God. And it's the fact that what he says will always come to pass every time he says anything that he will do. He will do it. See, there's something about Joshua's life that when you look at his life at the beginning and at the early parts of the conquest, they're coming across the Jordan River and God is saying to Joshua and to the people of Israel and to the elders, be strong and courageous. It's not because Joshua and Caleb and a whole bunch of these men were just stronger than the opposing enemy. They had a God who committed to the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they banked on the promises of God. To highlight this reality, I mean, even just notice why he puts these three people in the closing remarks of the book of Joshua. Okay, think about the people he mentions. Joseph, Joshua, Eliezer. When you're studying the Bible and even gets an end, sometimes you get to the end of a book and you kind of do this to yourself like, whoo, we're done, all right, chapter closed, new chapter open. There's a reason, by the way, he puts those people in there. It's because these people mark the reality that God's promises were kept. You remember what Joseph said in Genesis chapter 50, verse 24 and 26? He said, take my bones with you when you depart the land of Egypt. And when you come to the promised land, bury me in the place of the inheritance that will, be, will, will once be there. It's a, it's a distant reminder that God promised something and when he reflects on Joseph and now the present, notice, past and now present, Joshua, we've done it, Joshua's saying. God gave us the land he promised, the very land that Joseph said, bring his bones to and we've got his bones right here. And we're going to dig them up and we're going to put them back in the ground at the place where they're supposed to be. It's to highlight these people because these people highlight God's promises. The promise of inheritance. A promise to the people that there would be a land that they could bank on and that there would be a God who would deliver them from the people of the land. Joseph was a reminder of that. Remember that? The people thought as they were serving Egypt, what will become of us? And God, through Joseph, transfers the entire family down to Egypt, and he says, but you're going to be there for 400 years, and then I'm going to allow you to come out of this land, and I will make for you a land that is of your own, the one that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham went to rest to go to be with God, with that promise in his mind. Jacob went to rest with that promise in his mind. Joseph went to rest with that promise in his mind. Joshua and Eliezer are going to rest and, and pass away with that promise in their mind. Believer, you want to ask yourself, how do you prepare well to die? It's you keep the promises of God at the forefront of your mind. You hold them and let no one take them away from you. No matter how many generations it may, it may have to fulfill before the, law, the Lord brings them all to pass. And I wish I knew like when the Lord was going to come, don't you? Both scary and exciting. But the reality is when he says he's coming, we go to rest from this earthly life with that promise in mind. And I can tell you, both as, you, as I've seen the, the side of contemplation of who they, a person wished they would have been, I have seen the joyous occasion of a life lived well for the glory of God. And as they lay there on their deathbed, just saying this, these words, Jesus, I am ready. I just want to be with you. I'm ready to go. 
I, I'm so thankful for all the things that you've put in my life, the people that you've had, for the way that you loved me. And you watch a Christian depart in that kind of mentality and in peace of mind, knowing that they're saved from eternal separation from God in hell. That's the goal. How do you get there? You keep the promises of God in the forefront of your mind. Just read the Bible and begin to start jotting down all the promises that God promised to the believer. And not one of them, not one of them is going to just escape his perspective. He is going to fulfill every single one. And here's a promise that he's gonna fulfill. He's gonna fulfill this promise to you to complete the work that he started. And it it begs the question for us, how well are we doing resting in the promises of God? See, when we don't rest in the promises of God, do you notice this earthly mentality begins to start pervade our mind? Do you notice that all of a sudden, when you let go of all the promises, your mind starts also living in fear? You ever felt that fear? I know there are young people all throughout this summer have been going over fear and anxiety. So Pastor Andy has been just drilling that into you. But you sense that, don't you? There's fear. What is it those things that will extinguish that fear? Think about the people going into a land that they felt like grasshoppers. What will extinguish the fear that they had? It is the promise of God in his presence. It is the promise of God in his presence that will take you through to give you strength and courage to be able to say, you know what, I'm not, I don't need to fear. You ever, anybody here ever worry? Of course not. It just consumes your mind in a way where you lay in bed at night just thinking to yourself, oh, what about this and what if this and what about this and what if that? It is at those moments that it is critical for you and I to remember What about the promises of God? What if you're here and you're just saying, you know what, I just, I haven't done a good job. Do you realize that your assurance of salvation is not based on your own good works? I love what John says in the gospel in John 10, 27. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Believer, if you have repented and turned to Jesus Christ as your savior, you don't have to to doubt whether God will do what he said he was going to do with you. You can rest in the assurance that God has saved your soul and brought you from death to life and that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't have to live another day thinking, but I just don't think I'm a believer. If you have repented of your sins and trusted in the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf and you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, it is he alone who holds you tightly in his hands and he will never let you go, ever. Not one single moment of your life will you ever live thinking, but what if he drops me? He will never drop you because he loves you. He loves you even in your panic and your fear and your doubt and he wants to bring you to the place of rest. Live your Christian life in a Psalm 1 kind of way. Blessed is the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. But his or her delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law does he meditate day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of living water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf doesn't wither, and all he or she does prospers. The wicked aren't so They're like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. See, if you're here this morning, and you're on the path of perishing in eternity forever, there's a solution for what you're experiencing. You don't have to pass from this life 
into the next, into eternal separation from God for eternity. Jesus Christ, God's God's son has come to pay the the penalty and the fine for your sin, for my sin, for the sins of the world. And if you humble yourself and you confess your sins and you turn through repentance and faith, guess what he will do for you? He will take that burden of sin that, that Jesus paid for and he will unloosen it And I love the story of Pilgrim's Progress when he gets to that particular portion and he gets to the cross and he humbles himself and that burden of sin rolls down the hill and he was free. You can be free from your sin because of Jesus Christ who is the Savior and King and rest in the promises that God has something better for you and wants to use you. There is not a single person in this auditorium that God doesn't desire to use for his glory. It's just that we are often reluctant to see that, to take the perspective that we are usable. Christian, put aside the reluctancy that you have, thinking that you have to polish yourself up first. See, the cleansing that you will have and that I get to and we all get to experience is the cleansing of confession. And that's not just a one-time event. That's in all of your life, as much as you need it, all the time. And you can be used. See, bank on these promises. Don't live your life thinking to yourself, well, I just don't know if he can hold on to me. No, believer, he can. And he wants to. That's why he did the work he did through his son. To put you into a stronger hand of God in which not even yourself can take that away from him. Keep your mind on the promises. But also remember that, secondly, not only does the book of Joshua understand that, that, that promises were kept from God, but that rest is realized. Notice in the text, there's a reason why he juxtaposes these ideas or these realities. Notice this in verse 32. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they, are buried, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces, and it became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. Notice, when they buried Joshua, what's the difference? Is that Joseph's early descendants had to pay for the land in Shechem. Joshua experienced the inheritance. The whole point of him helping us understand this is look at the difference between their burial sites and how they acquired them. Joseph had to acquire it because he had to pay a payment because the land wasn't their own. They had to buy a piece of property from the people of Shechem so that they would have a burial ground for the family. But that wasn't the case now in Joshua. Rest was realized as the inheritant promise of God as he brought him into the land. And Joshua and Eliezer got to experience what Joseph wished he could have experienced, but died longing for it. That rest was realized that God's promises were kept and even in their dying breast and their burial grounds was a picture of God's promises stamped on their life. This is the land who gave? That the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He wasn't buried in the land. Get this picture. This is part of what he's intending. Joseph and his, and his descendants before him, Jacob and Abraham, they were buried as foreigners who had to buy the land. Joshua was buried as one who was a landowner. Joshua owned the land not because he was so good, but because the promises of the father who promised them gave them this land with the whole reality in mind that when you come into the land, the Bible says in Deuteronomy, and there's houses you didn't build and lands you didn't till and fruit that you didn't, you didn't plant. Don't forget who gave all this to you. Joshua lived his whole life recognizing that he needed that kind of dependence. He was no longer buried as a foreigner. I mean, don't you just long 
to experience the presence of God and to see his promises fulfilled. I can remember so often my grandma would say, why, I thought this promise would be fulfilled in my time, but I guess not. 96, she saw all kinds of things. Think of the things Joshua would have seen at 110. I mean, would you want to just sit there with this guy? Okay, tell me another story. So many people who would have known Joshua in the conquest and in his tribe and in his family, grandchildren would sit at the feet of this man and hear the wondrous works of the living God. They would walk by the memorial stones uh, and they would see and they would recount and remember, oh, Joshua, Grandpa Joshua told us about this. Grandpa Joshua remembered that. And every leader of every tribe would, be would, would transmit that history of the work of God to the next generation to come to remind them that their rest will be realized. Christian, you may pass away to, to, to the next generation of your grandchildren and perhaps you will be saying to them on your deathbed, hold on to these promises. If there could be one thing that I want you to make sure that you don't forget, it's these promises of God. Because you will at one day stand before the creator of the, of the universe and give an account for your life. His presence, his omnipotence, all the things that God has done, we ought to transmit this to the next generation because rest will be realized. Why bring up Eliezer, by the way? Seems like a kind of tag-on addition. Well, here, I guess we'll record this guy dying too since we're in the process and habit now. No, there's a reason. These are great leaders. Who was Eliezer? I mean, you thought about that in the Old Testament. Aaron had four sons, didn't he? Aaron, Aaron desired to have this whole lineage of, of Levitical priests, and he had four sons. Eleazar, Ithamar, Nadab, and Abihu. Of which, Eleazar is a prominent figure in the conquest because what's gonna happen to these other two as they come into the land? Nadab and Abihu go and offer profane fire before the Lord and before the tabernacle of God, God strikes these two Levitical individuals down. Eliezer is marked as the successor of Aaron much in the way that Joshua, uh, that Joshua was the successor of Moses. Two great men, leaders of old, who would pass into their graves grabbing on to the promises of God, not panicking when everyone else was panicking. When Joshua and Caleb would say, come on, let's go into the land, and everyone else was saying, we can't do it, they lived their lives like that. And that's what he's calling us to do. That when someone someday perhaps walks by our gravesite, I don't know if there could be a, a greater statement written on a gravestone than servant of the Lord. Believers, you have been made servants who were bought with a price. That title is not demeaning. Grab hold of servant, slave, and that reality and give your life to him. In whatever way that he has called you to give it to him, in whatever occupation he's called you to give it to him and live it for him and your rest will one day be realized and on your gravesite, whether or not anyone ever walks by and sees and remembers who you are, I don't think at that point you're really gonna care. You'll be with him. Believers don't live with a sense let me say it this way. Live with a sense of your own mortality. When you pass a graveyard, do you just say to yourself, glad I'm not there yet? <laughs> or do you, does it, is it a sober reminder that death is an inevitable reality because of sin? And it calls you to live your life in a way that is pleasing to God because you too will one day be called to prepare as you're preparing to meet your master and maker. David knew this in Psalm 30, 39, 4 and 5. Listen to his words. O oh Lord, make me know my end 
And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely, all mankind stands as a mere breath. In the words of James, your life is but a vapor. It appears for a little time and vanishes away. How you live it matters. Although, but how you live it is directly connected to the promises you will reflect on. Here's the last lesson, I think, as he brings us to a conclusion of these godly people in the life of Israel, is that leadership is remembered. There's something remarkable when leadership is passed from one generation to the next, isn't it? People thought, what are we going to do? God was like, I have got you covered. I've been thinking ahead about this from eternity past, and I got all the right things in place. Don't worry about that. Just worry about being faithful. And all of a sudden, God gives a litany of leadership that was supposed to be remembered, but not because just to remember it for the sake of remembrance of a person who lived on earth, but that their life would be remembered for glorifying God. See, if we don't glorify God, what, what about our life is worthy of remembering See, we have to live in a way that, that God's glory through our lives could outlast our living body so that even if they came and someone knew us, that what they would recall is, man, I always remembered, they always pointed to me to be more faithful, trust in the promises of God, to deal with my life in a way that's confession, repentance, admittance, transparency, They lived with life in the body. I want people to remember, did they speak the truth in love? Or did they just speak the truth without it? Or they had so much love that they never even told me the truth. How could he not have said this to me? There's a delicate balance of leadership and Joshua was this kind of person that through his lifetime, I always think it's remarkable, this man in his history went from Moses' aid to the replacement of the guy he served from the son of none to the servant of God. I mean, I think there are portions of it. Joshua comes out of Egypt like the rest of them, thinking, okay, what are you gonna do with me? And all of a sudden he finds himself in Moses' aid. Now, I bet that was a coveted position. Like, oh, like, what are you gonna do saying occupation? Oh, what do you do? Uh, I serve Moses. Oh, okay. You've got the floor. (laughs) Joshua had a a, a firsthand look at the glowing face of Moses as he met with God. He would would be partial way when he'd have to come down and witness them uh, pouring themselves out into idol worship at the golden calf. Joshua saw all kinds of things in his leadership. He left a legacy of God glorification in his life. Notice this. It's kind of interesting in the end of the book of Joshua. There's no successor mentioned. Like you get to the beginning of the conquest and and early parts of Deuteronomy. And think about it in Deuteronomy and Joshua. God is preparing in Deuteronomy for Joshua to take Moses' spot. You got through Joshua, you have no development of a successor, but Joshua pouring his lives into the elders and into the process that God in the Levitical system has now put in place to retain spiritual worship and loyalty to God. Why did they not need another Joshua? Well, because they had a king. Joshua wasn't trying to be remembered as that person. He wanted to say, people of Israel, worship your king. And now God put in place the Levitical, the Levitical priestly line that the Levitical system would now be symbolic of a, of a life relationship with God that he wants you to come. He wants you to have fellowship. And the sad reality is, uh, is that in many times where we could have these precious things, we fail to remember them and we just wait and we don't go before the Lord. Joshua going from son of none to servant of God, displayed a sense of faithfulness, honesty, integrity, service to the life before the people of God, and most of all, faithfulness, honesty, integrity before God. Christian, be that kind of leader. 
Be one who is filled with integrity. You are in front of people exactly the same person you are behind their back. Don't live this pharisaical, hypocritical life that burdens your life with guilt and shame because you refuse to be a person of integrity before the Lord. God knows us. He offers forgiveness and grace. I love how the ending of the book of Joshua reminds us that this Levitical system was gonna permeate far beyond the death of these leaders amongst the people of Israel. It reminds me of very much of what Paul had done in 2 Timothy chapter two when he says to Timothy, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Pour your life into a relationship with God and a relationship with people. Please, believers, members of the chapel, do not look at one another as a duty, but building the relationship as a delight of your Christian journey to what God is solely doing in the lives of so many people around you. Take time to take one another to coffee, meet each other for dinner, have each other at the table. Recount the stories of the promises of God that will ignite your soul to lead and disciple and share and trust in the living God until he calls you to be home. That will be a life worth enjoying and living for the Lord. I love what he says in the book as he ends, and you, can, and you notice this, Joshua lived to be 110, and then it says, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the works that the Lord did for Israel. Now let's just give me, let me give you a, just a brief foreshadowing of this reality in Judges 2. In Judges chapter 2, verses 10 to 11, while all the efforts of leadership and all the passing of the baton occurred, Judges 2, verse, uh, verse 10 and 11 says this, and all the generations that were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served Baals. Young people, you can classify yourself in that young. You, you get to apply that whether you're young or not this morning. But young people, don't let yourself participate in becoming a next generation that does not know God or his ways. Don't think, older believers, that it's beyond those who live after us, generations, people who, who were our descendants, that had not seen and have not reflected on the promises of God that they one day too will do whatever is right in their own mind. Young person, the only way to be an old person to do that is to take advantage of it now. Live that way. Trust in him. Don't be that next generation. And the reality is, as believers living in a, in a culture of the West that used to be a, described as a Christian culture, we now, and most theologians describe it as a post-Christian culture. We are living in days where Christianity is not the normal anymore. Believing in God, going to church, resting in his promises, living with moral principles. It is all put by the wayside as if it means nothing. Young people, be a different generation. Be a generation that rises up and says, I will take the mantle of that. I want to make sure that I'm spiritual. I would love to have, be served, serving the Lord as an elder at Cape Bible Chapel 20 years from now. I want to be the Sunday school teacher, nursery worker, discipler, camo staff, you name it. Whatever it is God's doing, be the person spiritually that can be a next generation that looks to this and says, I know how that happened. They did not forsake the Lord. They clung to his ways. We don't know how long God will allow us and leave us here. But we know that for whatever his plan is, it's for good until that last soul 
comes to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in, Gentile, in the Gentile community, Paul says, and that moment the Lord will know and he will rapture us to be with him forever. Live in that kind of faithful, loyal way. Why? Because of this one particular conclusion that I hope that you, that you take away applicationally from Joshua, and it's this. Choices have consequences. You can choose to serve the Lord, Joshua said, for as me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Believers, brothers and sisters, our choices have consequences. Young people, your choices have consequences. Live with an understanding that leading for the Lord matters wherever he has called you to lead, lead at the moment. If you're a leader in the youth, then be a godly leader. Serve and love the Lord. If you're in college, love the Lord, lead, disciple, care. Do it all throughout the course of your life, in every stage, in every season. Remembering the, 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 the work of God that is, is given to us in the book of Joshua, that grace is available. When you recall the story of Rahab and Gibeon, even though they lied, God could have struck them dead, but he chose to give grace. Be that person who, like Rahab, was living amongst the community till the end of her days and was a testimony of God's saving grace. Remember, as Achan would have taught us, doesn't matter what season of life you're in, be sure your sin will find you out. You can't hide your sin in the middle of your tent and think that God's not gonna care about it. Choose today who you will serve. Get the idols that are going on in your lives, the things that you serve, the things that are both exposed and the things that are hidden. Because choices have consequences. Remember Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, brothers and sisters. There were blessings. There were cursings. Our God can bring on the blessings and desires to bring us blessing as we are faithfully following his word. And I tell you this after the life, I think it's only fitting after thinking about application and being in the life of the people of Israel and the conquest to say this to you. Don't give up. You may pass before you end up realizing all the blessings to be fulfilled. Don't give up. It's a reason why we read Galatians 6 this morning. In your weariness of living the Christian life and dealing with sin and the fight of faith and all of the, the, the physical aspects of how sin has pervaded, even our own bodies, don't give up trusting in him and being loyal to him. Keep the memory of faithful servants in the forefront of your mind those who have impacted your life, who have served the Lord, those who have gone before you, who have lived the life that you're trying to live and have done it in a way that yes, at times they would look and say, don't you, don't fall into this, but get over here and be in this. Keep the faithful memory of those servants alive in your mind. Gaze, believers, on the, on the perseverance of the son. Learn how to suffer well the way Jesus suffered. Look to the promises of Christ to sustain you and to bring you the hope and determine in your own life to be like him at all costs. Be faithful and loyal to this king who's coming to take us home so that this rest would finally be realized and we can go to be with him and enjoy his presence forever. I'm gonna close you with this text in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Believers, we're gonna go worship him together to be there that one day. Let's live today 
as if we're looking forward and, and realize that that's where we're headed so that everyone around us who meets us and sees us and knows Cape Bible Chapel, that they will know that we are committed to God, we are committed to his truth, and we are committed to one another. The more we do that, I pray, and I think what the scriptures tells us is that we can live a life that God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Your rest and my rest will be realized, and in the meantime, be strong and courageous. The Lord is going to be with you wherever you go, whatever he's called you to do. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we conclude the journey of the conquest of the people that you called from darkness to light, Lord, we see reminders and lessons all throughout the Old Testament narratives and in the New Testament that call us to be those kinds of people. Help us to be faithful. Oh God, I, I pray that you help me be a faithful leader, that our, you would help our elders be faithful leaders here at the chapel. Help our deacons serve faithfully and our members serve faithfully to one another. Lord, that we would be loyal to you, that we would, we would have a next generation that comes from Cape Bible Chapel, that it wouldn't be said of them that they turned and did whatever was right in their own eyes, but they would have clung to the promises of God. And out of those, you will produce a generation again that loves you and is faithful and loyal to you. Help us to persevere and help us to follow your ways for as long as you want each of us to live here on earth in a way that would be reflective that you own us and you've given us the promises to live by. Lord, give us the strength to live that way. In your name we pray, amen.